Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing manish sabarwal knows what makes the indian economy tick and what could make it tick a whole lot faster he is after all the person who's providing a key input for their growth people manish believes that china's pivot has brought forward global interest in india and the fact there is no scalable alternative makes the india story even more enticing this among others is a key reason why he thinks that the next 20 to 25 years could be india's moment all we need to do is grab it and for that manish offers a five point action plan listen in uh, hi manish welcome to the equity master investor hour uh, this is a pretty unusual investor hour as as you know our listeners and our viewers know uh, our beat here is money how you know when you and wealth creation over decades uh, as against near term but uh, today we are going to talk real economy and i can almost bet there'll be no mention of the stock market maybe <laughs> in our discussion which i think will be a welcome relief but at the same time i think it is so essential for our listeners to get a good feel of uh, india where we are coming from and where we are going and i'm talking decades i'm talking centuries i'm you know i'm talking that kind of a pattern because i think uh, a typical listener just for your information and also those who are viewing and listening to us our typical uh, listener and viewer is over 35 40 years of age which is very odd in a country so young uh, most podcasts you know pride themselves in talking about how many youngsters are following them in our case is completely the flip 75 to 80% of all those who engage with us are over 35 40 years of age so at that age they're looking for more serious things uh they're looking for uh you know they've been through all the trial and errors in life if you will and uh, and i think that uh, today's discussion will uh possibly play a significant role in that decision making process when it comes to maybe investing maybe taking big decisions in life Uh, uh going forward so i'm really looking forward to it and i'm so glad you could make time for it yeah well, thanks thanks for having me okay so just to get some context tell us a little bit about yourself uh where did you grow up what have you studied uh, just just so that people get to know you more than what they know you already as the founder of teamlease well she's born and brought up in kashmir so i'm the child of civil servants which means i carry the gifts and wounds of a civil service upbringing you know the gifts are quite substantial frugality but most importantly i think i grew up realizing we don't live in an economy we live in a society right i think that's a big gift children of civil servants get obviously the wounds were risk aversion my father would have preferred me to take a salary you know and and um, you know rather than take all these leaps into starting companies but um, you know i went to school in kashmir then i went to boarding school in rajasthan at mayo then i went to shriram college delhi for my bachelors 
Then I worked for five years, and then I went and got my master's at Wharton in the U.S. And straight after Wharton, I started a company um, called India Life, which did HR uh, outsourcing, uh, payroll, pensions, and stuff like that. I co-founded it with Ashok Reddy. He was my roommate in SRCC. He went to IM Bangalore. He was at ICICI getting bored out of his mind. So we started India Life, and then um, we sold India Life to Hewitt, um, uh, which was an NYSE-listed company. Now it's called Aon, um, in 2002. Uh, they let a show go straight away, but they sentenced me to two years in Singapore to run Asia Pacific for Hewitt, which I did, which I hated because king of a small kingdom is still king. Once you've worked for yourself, it's very hard to work for a big company. And anyway, there were 29 people on a conference call every Monday morning. Anybody could say no and nobody can say yes. And that's true for big companies. Actually, In fact, I, I should take that back, right? I'm less arrogant than I used to be. Now we have 29 people on a conference call. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, it's sometimes big companies are, are different from small companies. I think it's it's not better or worse. The instinct to preserve is different from the instinct to create. So my time at Hewitt was interesting for me, but I came straight back at the end of two years and started Team Lease exactly 20 years ago. So uh, I can, uh, if I uh, just replay that a bit, you went to Mayo, you went to Shiram. Shiram, you probably did commerce, I'm assuming. Economic yes, a BCom, a total waste of time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure. And then you went to Wharton, which again, uh, business administration, MBA, uh, what was yeah, it? I did, I did an MBA, but then I, 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 I sort of did the offbeat stuff. I did entrepreneurship, I did pensions, I did systems thinking, but I did get an MBA. That was the degree. Okay, so I caught pensions there because I'm trying to connect because uh, what led you to literally start uh, in this space, which you still occupy today. Was it serendipity or was it just simply you? Yeah, it was my vacuum? final project. Yeah, it was my final project, India Life. You know, when I, I in the four years that I worked, five, four and a half years that I worked between my bachelor's and master's, I got a great job. I was executive assistant to the chairman of an Indian group called Penard. And, you know, he was a first generation entrepreneur too. So I sort of got a big job in a small company. He was breaking off from Nagarjuna. And I, I just realized that there were such huge opportunities. And India Life originally was going to be a, a pension, a life insurance pension company, because that's when deregulation was happening. But that didn't happen. But, um, you know, Lazar Private Equity, there was a guy who came to give a lecture. I separated him from uh, $2 million. He separated me from half my company. In retrospect, that was a mistake. But, um, you know, I was comparing it to zero in college. So $2 million seemed like a lot of money at that point in 96. So, so it, it was really just thinking about India domestic markets, thinking about India sort of why was, you know, one of the most interesting questions of all times is, why are countries poor? And that's a question which I've thought of growing up in Kashmir. I've thought about when I went, when I landed in the US in August 94, by September, I was asking myself, these Americans aren't smarter than us. Why are they richer than us? And clearly, I can kick their butt individually, right? But, so essentially, I've always thought about this sort of poverty question because cultural explanations for poverty drive me crazy. Right. I mean, India is not poor because of some Hinduism or because of some weather or some crap like that. I mean, cultural explanations for poverty are at best the soft bigotry of low expectations and at worst they are racism. Right. So mm -hmm. I was quite clear that this was a plumbing problem. And uh, obviously plumbing is sort of labor markets. And so India Life was HR outsourcing of a different kind. It was really the plumbing of organizations. I took away payroll, pensions, HR. And then team lease was obviously staffing. Yeah. 
So you spoke about, uh, you know, why countries are poor. That's a question that is played on your mind. Uh, so India was not always poor, right? Uh, if you go back, I think even, uh, what, two, three hundred years, 200 years maybe, uh, we were pretty well-off nation if you go by what, uh, you know, we read in the books, if you will. So uh, since you've thought about this a lot, talk to us about what has transpired. I know it's a vast uh you know, it's a question which can be, you know, it's probably taken out to answer, but I want you to talk to us about India. How has it panned out over centuries? And what has led to this moment where we are now? And then we can kind of look forward after that. Talk to, uh, talk to us yeah. about that, please. So the important thing um, to first make up your mind is whether poverty is about GDP or about per capita GDP. Because today we are 138th in per capita GDP, but we are fifth in total GDP. And But COVID has reminded us that poor countries are countries who are poor in per capita GDP, because that really decides your ability to respond to an emergency. So actually, it's a myth. 200 years ago, we were not rich. We were 40% of world GDP, India and China, because we were 40% of world population. See, before the Industrial Revolution, your GDP depended on how many people you had. You know, from zero to 1800, um, almost incomes per capita incomes didn't change right lives were nasty brutish and short as hobbes called it there was a great divergence somewhere around the 1800s which was the industrial revolution and obviously india did not catch that train um and in fact we ended up being uh, colonized by the uh, you know origination of the industrial revolution and and so essentially um Dadabai Naroji's work in the early 1900s and later, of course, it is clear that India's labor is handicapped without capital and India's capital is handicapped without labor at independence. Um, life expectancy was 31. Um, so clearly it was um, a problem. But the challenge, you know, I, I have an expiry date on the British rule, right? In 1947, it's now 75 years. And to my mind, we have created the world's largest democracy on the infertile soil of the world's most hierarchical society. But why didn't we create the world's largest economy? And obviously, there is an opening balance element of that, that the British really screwed us and we had life expectancies and they didn't invest in primary education. They didn't invest in anything, right? I mean, and the Maharajas certainly didn't. Rajasthan has Rambagh Palace and Lake Palace, but there was not a single university in Rajasthan at independence. So clearly, the British, between the British and the Maharajas, we had a difficult opening balance. But I think, you know, we made two reckless experiments when we became free in 1947. One was a political experiment. No country had ever given universal franchise at birth. You know, Switzerland gave some women the right to vote in 1972. So that experiment has worked out spectacularly, right? Pakistan and India, born on the same night, have had different destinies because 3 million people in India win an election, 30 lakh people, you know, 20 million people stand for an election. So the political reckless experiment worked out spectacularly. But the economic experiment, and you can also call it the Avadi Resolution of 1955 or the 1956 second five-year plan, where you really handicapped the private sector, where you really decided that public sector would be um, born from What's nationalizing banks. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so the whole commanding house of the economy really were captured in the second five-year plan. And so fast forward from 1956 to now, or even to 1991, essentially, our enterprise stack got screwed, right? We have 63 million enterprises in India, but 12 million don't have an office, 12 million work from home, only 12 million are registered for GST, only 1 million pay provident fund, 
but there are only 23500 companies in india with a paid up capital of more than 10 crores so the 63 million enterprises have lots of labor but no capital and the 23500 companies have lots of capital but no labor so we've ended up with this bimodal distribution which really impacts our productivity so finally poverty is about productivity right and and india is poor because we have five levels of poor productivity we have states we have cities we have sectors we have firms and we have skills so states it's clear right my parents live in up i live in karnataka both have the same gdp karnataka has one fourth the people cities i mean if everybody in india lived in bangalore india's gdp would be more than china right china bangalore's gdp is 11000 dollars india's gdp is 2000 dollars sectors agriculture 42% of our labor force it only generates 16% of gdp it is only 0.8% of labor force it generates 8% of gdp so which sector you work in really matters obviously which skills you have i mean we get to black kids coming to us for a job every month kids with the same age same qualification same look we pay four times difference in salary based on the skills they have based on soft skills based on body odor based on whether you cut your nails whether you tuck your shirt in whether you shave and of course whether you're good at selling customer service and logistics which are the three fastest growing segments of india right now so in the long view of history i would say that we screwed ourselves by not thinking about productivity and this is a debate which is not over right people think india has a jobs problem we don't have a jobs problem we have a wages problem and wages are reflective of productivity at these five levels so you can't because they're not productive you can't pay them and because you don't pay them they're poor so it starts off with productivity you're stuck in a low level equilibrium right as an entrepreneur there are two kinds of companies you can start a baby and a dwarf the baby and a dwarf are both small but the baby is going to grow and the dwarf is going to stay there india is a nation of corporate dwarfs um because we stuck in this low level equilibrium and so you have to figure out a way you know and, and people say it's a chicken and egg problem you know which comes first productivity or wages wages i mean if you don't have productivity you can't pay wages but if you don't have wages you don't have productivity ever i mean the only way to solve a chicken and egg problem is to become vegetarian right do something completely <laughs> do something completely different which yeah. is what we're yeah. trying right now so you know many years ago and i i hope i'm not misquoting this but i had read a uh, something from martyr sen and he said india needs primarily three things better healthcare better education and land reform and if you get these three things right india could be much you know a much better off place now i don't know how much of that feeds into productivity but how do you solve a productivity issue and is india starting to solve it i'm not sure amatya sends wrong but i'm not sure he's right either right i think that productivity is a complex cocktail of motivations of environment of course primary healthcare and primary education are two big misses in the 50s and 60s and 70s india and we are paying the price for that but regulatory cholesterol is also an important part right you know we have 67000 compliances 21000 ways to go to jail 6700 filings for employers now people say oh, well this is just a thorn in the flesh it's not a dagger in the heart well for an individual it is but aggregate it's a dagger in the heart india is globally our brand is of a difficult place to do business now hamari kismat hai ki xi jinping is you know making india very attractive <laughs> right now but um, china factories i mean apple would not have set up their factory for another 5 or 10 years if xi jinping wasn't doing what he's done 
Um, I mean, Xi Jinping has made a list of everything that Deng Xiaoping did right, and he is crossing it off. So I would say that Amartya Sen is right in some ways. Um, and if you you just have to look at India and China, right? India and China had the same per capita GDP in 1991, and now they are five times more than us. They have they have raised their per capita GDP 40 uh, 40 times in the last um, 80 times in the last 40 years. And so we just have to recognize that um, that was not culture. That was they fixed their plumbing. So I think Amartya Sen's healthcare, education, land vector is right. But there's a lot more that China did, or America does, or Germany, or whichever country you envies per capita income. Switzerland is sixty-five thousand, seventy thousand dollars per capita income. So I envy a lot of that. But I've just learned that these monoclonal or simplistic—you do three things and you suddenly become prosperous. Yeah. You know, as Einstein used to say, you know, make things as simple as possible, not simpler. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh- so uh, talking a little bit more about this productivity issue, uh, I don't know, uh, is, it, is it across the economy, across sectors? Or for example, uh, and I want to talk about IT outsourcing over here, these new industries that have come up and which are globally competitive, are they the result of the productivity problem being solved or are they the ones which are the trigger for solving the productivity issue? I think they're, I still haven't figured out what matters more in love, luck, skill, luck or skill, right? I mean, I think that um, it is no economist would have predicted that last year India would have exported more software than Saudi Arabia did oil. I think that would not have been in any economist's horizon. So I think there were some choices. There was the IITs, there was the diaspora. You know, India was hostile to talent, so many people left. The diaspora became very important for India's software and product industry. There was the English language. STPs versus SEZs, there was some good regulatory policy choices. You know, it's it's a random experiment. STPs are Sorry, the same SEC thing. I get. SEZ I got, but STP? Is what every software company which exports in this country is. <laughs> so you were you had SEZs for manufacturing and you had STPs for software. Software technology parts. Okay, got software it. technology parts. And so you 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 it's just a randomized controlled trial of two policies of which one took off and one didn't. While actually people expected SEZs to take off faster because of China, right? And SEZs have been a complete failure. While software, so I think. Obviously, software is an oasis of high productivity. As I mentioned, it's a rounding error in the labor market. It only employs 5 million out of the 500 million, um, uh, 550 million labor force, but it's going to 10 million and it's 8% of GDP, right? So I think software is an example of where a democracy like India, which speaks English, where education is valued, has found um, a niche. But I don't think software is the solution to India's poverty. I think Software has created is a solution to India's soft power. But I think India's poverty will require um, us to raise the productivity of, you know, the 500 other million people in the labor force. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm, I'm asking this again, but, uh, and you said productivity is a function of many things, but uh, are we on course to starting to address that or we are still stuck in the past and we are letting things happen uh, as they were happening before? No, no, not at all. I think 1991 was a very important leap for productivity. But there were three or four things missed in 1991. We missed education, we missed banking, and we missed corruption. 
And corruption is really related to formalization and regulatory cholesterol, of which we've got started, made a lot of progress on formalization. I think regulatory cholesterol is on the agenda. But education was a really big miss, right? I mean, primary education was a was a blind spot for policymakers for 30, 40 years. And IITs were very interesting and useful because you could write a check and you could do a small numbers, but they didn't move the needle on the labor force. So finally, human capital is a driver of productivity, right? And we neglected human capital, both health and education, where Amartya Sen is right. But I think that NEP, which is the National Education, the New Education Policy 2020, really thinks hard about the 21st century education. See, we had, you know, Gandhiji gave a wonderful speech in 1934 at Varda called Nai Talim, where he talked about experiential education, he talked about education for life, he talked about if you're ch- telling a child to choose their subjects too early, that's like child marriage. I mean, it was very incisive and very interesting speech, but that did not find its place in the 1948 Radhakrishnan report or the 1968 Kothari Committee report or the 1986 National Education Policy. So I think finally in NEP 2020, we have a human capital roadmap for the next 10, 20 years, which builds on our current opening balance, breaks down the barriers between education and employability, between training and skills and education, thinks about school education. So I think among all national plans or policy or road direction of travels, NEP 2020 is a good human capital um, roadmap that we finally have. Thanks. Good. Uh, Talking about uh, China, you spoke about how China's per capita income is shot up 80 times in the last 40 years. Where, uh, what do you think triggered that fork in 1991 between China and India. What have they got? So uh, they've got a lot of things right. So what are the things that got right that you think are just, you know, know, just tear it up and copy it in India and implement it in India? And what are the things that you would still not do even though it brought them success? India can never be China, right? There are fixed costs of democracy, right? But I think the challenge we have in policy is most people think China was successful because of communism. China was successful because of leadership. Let's, let's you know, Deng Xiaoping's wonderful biography by Ezra Vogel will show you this was the man who had um, obviously was part of the old regime, but he was honest with himself, right? See, the most dangerous lies are the lies we tell ourselves as people, as boards, as companies, and as countries. And Deng Xiaoping called out the lie of Mao. He called out the lie that, look, communism is not servicing the people the same way that socialism was not serving India, right? I mean, socialism is basically capitalism without bankruptcy and competition. (laughs) So essentially, you take out bankruptcy and competition (laughs) from capitalism, you have socialism. And so I think China was very well served in 1978 by Deng Xiaoping. He was a very lucky person, I must say, in three ways. You know, he got a 30-year super cycle of global openness to trade. He got a 30-year super cycle of global growth. And he got a 30-year super global um, deconstruction of manufacturing supply chains. So I think Deng Xiaoping in 2018 may not have been as successful as Deng Xiaoping in 1978. But Deng Xiaoping was, you know, if you're right, I mean, he was a very wise man, right? You cross the river by feeling the stones. I don't care if a river, a cat is black or white, if it catches mice, we hide our strength and bide our time. If you're right 60% of the time, you're doing very well. So I would say that I I would say China's biggest gift was this 
this this four foot nine person called Deng Xiaoping, right? It, history is um, a complicated debate between circumstances and people. But um, India in 1980s, um, and that was really the opportunity that Deng sees, if India had opened up, there was no reason we couldn't have become the factory to the world. So I think our hostility to private sector, our mentality of prohibited till permitted, our mentality, the steel frame became a steel cage in so many ways. And so if the I can just shudder to imagine what would have happened to India if our imagination had not been opened up by the software and the pharma um, sector, because we were just so inward looking. So I think China's just leadership allowed it to become the factory to the world. They did textbook economics. They opened up factor markets. They reduced regulatory cholesterol. They, 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 but they also recognized, I think, which we also in always in India, that a modern state is a welfare state. So they didn't finance the welfare state by borrowing. They financed it with taxes. And I think that's um, the way we should do it too. Yeah, that's what seems to be happening. Uh, uh, when we think of the traditional, I don't know, and these days got so confusing. If you think of the traditional right wing, you know, they were always about, uh, uh, you know, less handouts, you know, uh, meritocracy. Fiscally, fiscally conservative. Fiscally yeah, fiscally conservative. conservative. But now the new brand, which is evolving, is that you have to deliver on both the fronts. You have to make it competitive. You have to grow. You have to do all that. And you have to do like a, welfare, a mini welfare state happening to take care of, you know, the people. And I think... Uh, how do you finance the welfare state? How do you finance? The question. <laughs> yeah, that's the question. That's the question. Yeah. And I think uh, if, if, if I may just add one line, and this is where I think, uh, and uh, though politics is not a beat, this is where I think... Uh, Narendra Modi has forked from a lot of the international leadership where he's taking both sides along. He's talking to the business and he's talking competition and growth and technology. And then he's going and to the rural village and say, I'm going to build you the toilets. I'm going to build you the school. I'm going to build you the healthcare. And I think that's, that's like bringing the boat together, which is the new, you know, the new form of government which seems to be working I, well. I don't I don't think that's new at all. I don't think you can be a policy wonk without being a political wonk. You know, I find policy. <laughs> I see policy wonks find them very uninteresting people if they don't shift from talking about what is to be done to how it is to be done. See, any reform in India, I can give you a forty-year-old report. You know, on education, on healthcare, on police reform. But those reports mostly focused on what is to be done, which is a technocratic policy wonk way of thinking. The world of politics is second best choices. It is compromises. It is saying different things to different people. It is forming allies, working with people you don't like. So the world of second best choices, you know, Avinash Dikshit, he's one of my favorite professors at Princeton. He always says life is second best at best. <laughs> and I think that anybody who wants to change a country must. And that was what Deng Xiaoping used to say very often in different ways also. Right. And I think so. So my sense is this is not anything new. The, the people who are successful are those who learn how to inhabit and be multilingual. You know, they, they are multi, they, they understand strategy, they understand operations, they understand poetry, they understand prose. And they recognize that monoclonal um, beings are, are actually at, are, are very risky in, 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 in terms of just resilience also, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, coming back to this whole China bit, uh, you mentioned that, 
you know, what Xi Jinping is doing over there, Xi Jinping is making India look better, right? And uh, we are seeing, you know, whatever interest we are seeing from foreigners. So uh, the other day I was, uh, you know, on a call with someone in the US and uh, his first reaction was that the people I know are so afraid of Asia, they're going all the way back to America. And then, and then actually, if you look at uh, the news from that perspective, there are a lot of companies which are now moving manufacturing all the way back to America, not coming to India. So talk to us about how this whole concept of China plus one, one being India, is actually playing out. Or is it we are still getting the dregs where someone else, maybe Vietnam or, you know, or maybe the US itself is going to end up being the biggest beneficiary of this China plus one? Uh, that's not true at all. I mean, Apple Apple iPhone would have brought its factory 10 years later to India. I, I know that for a fact. I think he has brought that. So, I mean, there are 50 factory refugees looking at moving out of China. Originally, they thought Vietnam and Thailand would work, but they don't have the scale. They don't have the um, skills and they just don't have the ecosystem that India has. So then you'll ask, well, why aren't people jumping at India? I think it is the old brand of difficult place to do business. I think civil service reform is a very important unfinished reform. But in, if you take the other binding constraints that people used to say about India, skills and education is getting better, infrastructure is getting better. But obviously, this regulatory cholesterol slash civil service is, a, is an overwhelming brand. But I know of 10 global corporations who have had their board meetings in India in the last month. I can attest to about 20 sort of investment committees of large pension funds. So everybody is upgrading their presence. People who had distribution are moving to warehouse. People who have warehouse are moving to subsidiary. People who had subsidiary are moving to factory. So I think there's just this overall notion that India is one of the few places in the world with 20 years of growth ahead of us. Originally, and first phase of make in India was make for India. I mean, the, you, you, if you look at all this, you know, FDI, it was concentrated in areas where domestic markets are getting to critical mass. But you must also remember that 50% of India's foreign direct investment since 1947 has come in the last five years. That's, you know, most people sort of don't realize that 75 years of independence, the last five years are 50% of the total foreign direct investment that we have received. So there are various things going on. Obviously, compounding since 1991 of reforms has been happening. The world is aging. You know, in Japan, the sale of adult diapers cross baby diapers. Um, I, I think in Europe is imploding because of Social Security. You know, they have 7% of the world's population, 25% of the world's GDP, and 50% of the world's social spending. So my sense is that the India is the China plus one, of course. I think, I wish we had reduced the regulatory cholesterol faster. But I also am confident because 29 chief ministers matter more than one prime minister for the India plus one. When factories choose to come to India, they're choosing states. They're not choosing a country. And now they have moved beyond that. And so if the coastal states of Gujarat, Maharashtra, Tamil Nadu and Andhra and others get their act together, that's where the factories will come in the first phase. I mean, unfortunately. So I think that um, the China plus one is very real. I mean, see, there are switching costs in manufacturing, which we had underestimated. I think supply chains have to shift with the factory. So the first phase will be assembly, second stage will be components, and third stage will be the entire supply chain. Yeah. So uh, you're seeing this happening on the ground, 
and and yes. and you 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 believe that because i think the headline we're in staffing, india is we're staffing these people we are yeah. staffing i mean there are 40 companies who are in the process of 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 thinking about where they will be what kind of skills what kind of salaries what kind of components and it's just it's i think the train has left the station i think that people are 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 are, are sort of not we're expecting this to be a bulb that goes on it's going to be a gentle sunrise but i don't think it's stopping now got it that that's uh, very encouraging to hear uh of the people so uh, i'm going to tie this back to what you said a while back on the stps the software technology parks versus the secs now uh china was all about these secs and which worked wonders right uh the indian secs failed we had all these big corporates announcing those massive plans that didn't happen now uh when the business is moving to india a lot of it is got to do with manufacturing would i be right in saying that when we're looking at china plus one we're thinking manufacturing yes. assembly yes. now that's somewhere india has kind of missed the bus so far we jumped mm-hmm. from agriculture to services we missed manufacturing and we thought we done a great job but then manufacturing is what gets the blue collar jobs right and that's what uh, is critical so tie it all for us and tell us how it's all or is it coming together for india's secondary sector the manufacturing sector uh, uh, that is this now finally our moment where we get to become kind of a factory to the world in whatever sense see we it will never get to the peaks that other countries got to british the britain in world war 2 was 45% of its labor force in manufacturing that's america peaked at 33 china peaked at 26 we will never get to 45 33 or 28 but 11% of our labor force in manufacturing is absolutely the wrong number i mean that's that's what america has which is a post industrial economy right so america and india have the same percentage of our labor force so we will get to 17 18% which is another 100 million manufacturing jobs will that make us the factory to the world i think manufacturing has changed right so manufacturing is the the traditional boundaries between tang- between tradable and non tradable exports the traditional boundaries between goods and services exports the traditional boundaries between what is software and what is hardware all these are blurring so much and that plays to india's strength i think china would anyway have banged against a wall if they hadn't because they don't have the software industry that we have and i don't think they ever will for various reasons so i think anyway high skill manufacturing and high software integrated manufacturing was anyway moving to india but that's not very employment elastic right i mean you could run these these uh, highly automated factories and then labor on the software um, but i think that china has really accelerated the moving out prematurely let's call it premature um, they would have probably stayed china would have been competitive for another 5 or 10 years and then by then robots would have been doing a lot more than what we did so i think we we have a bit of luck here um but you know as i think the choices that we are also making are helping i think that people are recognizing that india is moving from deals to rules see i think what is development i mean in india nobody wants to follow a rule like if you follow a rule you feel like you missed a deal right you should have called somebody you should have you know hired somebody you should have paid off somebody but that's a dysfunctional um yeah. economy right so i think also there is a recognition so i am quite clear that 11% labor force in manufacturing will go to between 18 and 
If we're lucky, it might go to 22, 23, but that really depends on the automation. It doesn't depend on China. If, if, if robots are getting so good at manufacturing that maybe we get, even if robots get good, we're getting to 17, 18, but if they don't get good fast enough, we'll probably get to 22, 23, which would be another five, 10 million jobs. Yeah, and I guess this, what you mentioned, 100 million people, and that's the kind of opportunities India needs because of uh, the population that we are and the unemployment that there is. Uh, is it actually a- not that much unemployment. I'm not going to let that comment pass because yeah. unemployment is between four and nine percent since independence. Yeah, so, um, you know, that's you know I actually- we don't we have we we have underemployment. You know, people yeah. anybody who wants so so that's a distinction because unemployment is a mathematical term. Underemployment is a philosophical term. Now, what will be a living wage for my dad was not a living wage for me and is certainly not a living wage for my son. You know, what was a need, want and desire keeps increasing. So let's be clear. India has an underemployment or a poverty and a productivity problem. India doesn't have an unemployment problem because of two labor market shock absorbers, agricultural employment and self-employment. I was, Those I are really self, <laughs> yeah, self-exploitation, right? Yeah. So they're, you're, they're not self-employed, they're self-exploiting. So yeah. that is a very important, because if you say unemployment, then you need to throw money from helicopters, then wow. you need to mandate three-day work week. So the solutions are very different. In fact, I would submit that you would never chase formalization if you believed India had an unemployment problem. Because in the short run, formalization hurts MSMEs, it hurts self-employment, the big companies are getting bigger. So that is an underrated change in India's thinking that our problem is not jobs, it is wages. It is not enterprises, it is formal enterprises, which even we are following from a perspective of enforcement, right? The electronic and digital enforcement is raising PF payers. I mean, we've had more PF payers in the last eight years than we did in the 50 years before. That. Is it is it like a, a, a double boon for India that this whole China plus one seems to be happening at a point when our demographic dividend is kicking in? So if you could talk to us about what is how do you think of demographic dividend? Does it work for us? And how does it play into this whole China plus one money coming into India for manufacturing? See, I think everybody tends to underestimate the impact of aging on society. You know, Japan's population is coming down 3000 people per day. So it's now 125 million will come to 75 million in our lifetime. There is clearly a shortage of labor for healthcare, for education and for tertiary services in the rich countries right now. These are the lowest paid professions, of course, so maybe wages go up to some extent. But um, young countries like India, and this is where we have to um, thank democracy, right? Because even though Sanjay Gandhi wanted the one-child policy, it got enforced in communist China. In, in India, democracy did not allow it to happen, either because of civil disobedience of the servants or civil servants or because elections were held and then the government changed. So China will grow old before it grows rich. In fact, China is already growing rich. They will lose a population equal to France in the next five years. So their working age population is already declining. So I think that this, this, this impact of life expectancy reaching 80 in rich countries and reaching 70 in, in middle income countries and poor countries has greatly been underestimated as a driver of um, problems for these countries. 
either fiscal problems because you can't afford social security, the pyramid has been inverted, either um, working uh, age population problems, you just don't have enough people willing to do the backbreaking work which only young people can do. So India's 65% of India being less than 35 years old is essentially a big gift at this point in time when it feels like most rich countries just own 25% of the world's new workers in the next 20 years will be an Indian. One in four new workers will be an Indian. So I think it's important to recognize that demography sometimes is destiny. Now people will say, well, demographic can be disaster if you don't train these people, if you don't give them jobs to people, well, sure. I mean, but drunk driving is not an argument against cars. You know, knives can be used for surgery. They can be used for murder. So I think our young population at this point in humanity's history is a really uh, unfair advantage over other countries. Wow. And uh, uh, let's say it plays out well. Uh, and you, 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 of course, are, you know, you've got the uh, perfect numbers uh, in uh, what you've spoken so far, uh, can you quantify where it could, where we could end up in this after this twenty-year kind of? A, this is about uh, taking our per capita income to somewhere yeah. between ten and twenty thousand dollars. I mean, two thousand five hundred dollars may we cannot help our poor, and we may even get to five trillion. But we need to get to let's. We should shift our policy frame from GDP total, whether three or five or ten or twenty, to per capita income of somewhere between ten and twenty thousand dollars. And I think ten and twenty may be the new thirty or forty because of technology. See, technology is deflating the cost of everything. So actually, in my mind, per capita incomes of ten and twenty today are equal to per capita incomes of thirty, forty many years ago. You know, communication is cheap, food is cheap, transportation is cheap, coal—I mean, clothes are cheap. Of course, energy has become expensive, but maybe we'll find a solution to that in over time. So I think if we play our demographic dividend well. Um, we will get to somewhere between ten and twenty thousand dollars in per capita income, which is, you know, somewhere between seven and eight times of where it is today. And I think we'll put poverty in the museum it belongs. I think um, if there is should be any objective which every Indian should agree on, it is it is poverty, right? I mean, I memorized Pandit Nehru's Trist with Destiny speech when I was a child, and we missed that Trist with Destiny, right? There are three hundred million people in India who will never read the newspaper that they deliver or send their kids to the school that they build or sit in the car that they clean. But this isn't a problem like cancer or climate change. This is a plumbing problem, right? I mean, it's not a, we don't, we have the solution to this, which is productivity. So I'd say that um, the next 25 years in India, at least in my mind, will be very different from the last 25. Nice. Uh... China plus one, right? You're talking China plus one again. Uh, who's our main competitor for this? I know you mentioned that a lot of uh, countries don't really have the potential to scale like what we have. And if we have one in four of all the new workers who are coming in, I, I don't know where the competition is, but uh, in your conversations with all these uh, companies that are trying to set up base in India, are they like saying, uh, discussing with you, hey, the, you know, we got a better deal there or the prospects to better in Vietnam or wherever it is? I mean, of course, those countries are, you know, mayors in, are like mayors in China, right? They were, they were businessmen. They roll out. Our bureaucrats are 
on high horses and they don't really view their job as attracting investment or creating jobs but um, my sense is demographically the only competitor to india is africa and obviously africa is not an, considered an investment destination for various reasons but demographically that's where the other workers in the world will be and i don't think that's going to work out for africa that well so i think demographically no choice technologically i think we underestimate how much um, our soft power has gone up because of our software industry i mean everybody in manufacturing so there's no such thing as a digitization there's no such thing as a technology company anymore every company is a technology company right the digitization super cycle means that digitization for 2030 has been brought forward by 10 years by covid and maybe even faster so the explosion of global development centers in addition to third party software is complementing manufacturing the, right, the the manufacturing attraction of india so i would say that um the china plus one is obviously dependent on only one thing for us which is we have to get rid of this tag of being a difficult place to do business i think infrastructure is fixing human capital is getting fixed but anyway you know software only has 2 and a half lakh out of our 15 lakh engineers so it's not like you have to get all 15 lakh right i wish all 15 lakh engineers were but software industry the binding constraint is you know 2 to 2 and a half lakh freshers which we are um, sort of uh, producing at at good levels of um, international quality so i just say that this regulatory cholesterol you know human capital is finally the biggest driver of prosperity we have that see there's no shortage of land labor and capital in india <laughs> we don't have a shortage of land you could give every indian household half an acre and they would fit into rajasthan and haryana we don't have a shortage of labor 40% of our labor force is vela <laughs> we don't have a shortage of capital if we make ourselves worthy we 73 billion dollars of private equity came last year we were the second highest recipient of private equity in the world now 20 30 billion of that may be hype and froth which will now which was um for the unicorns but it's still a substantial amount of money or let's just go back to basics 50% of foreign direct investment has come in the last 5 years so if we make ourselves attractive capital is not a binding constraint labor is not a binding constraint it is what economists call total factor productivity or the solo residual how do land labor capital combine is entrepreneurship its innovation its technology and traditionally in india that was held back by regulatory cholesterol it was held back by a mindset of prohibited till permitted and all three of us need to take more risks and do more teamwork right the government has an execution deficit the private sector has a trust deficit non profits have a scale deficit but we if we want to really take up a capita income to 15000 all three of us will need to take more risks and do more teamwork i think we're on our way for that yeah uh, uh, you have uh, been in this uh, regulatory cholesterol which you say it's a uh, it's you know it's a brilliant phrase i'll remember this it's a great way to describe what where we are on uh, how it's improving or not uh, is uh, what 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 has been happening and i i think if you listen to the budget speeches of the government they're trying to get the people out of the way so like this year and i can share something personal when i filed my income tax returns i think the refund hit my account within 15 days so they processed the whole thing and they could generate the refund in 15 days the money and i'm like maybe there's an error right 
maybe it's intimation the money will come no they finished all the processing in 15 days and no more going to a babu and meeting him and probably giving some speed money to process the refund nothing like that so i guess these yeah, are it's not it's not 6700 ias officers right it's 25 million civil servants see civil servants in india would be the 50th largest country by population if you think about it and in this one you know as somebody born and brought up in kashmir i wish obviously patel had won over nehru in the kashmir argument but on the civil service argument i wish nehru had won over patel because patel used to think the indian civil service is the steel frame nehru used to say the indian civil service is neither indian nor civil nor a service inko to nikalo he used to say <laughs> because he, and, and i think he was so right you know the the model which of our indian civil service was made for 2 lakh people to rule over 300 million it was a control mentality it wasn't a facilitation mentality it wasn't a growth mentality and more importantly i think the permanent generalist civil service in today's world is is much less relevant than it was 70 years ago you know maybe india was needed to be held together after independence for 10 years or 20 years and we've done that but now the growing the economy is a much more specialized job which needs domain knowledge which needs compounding of knowledge which hasn't happened always yeah in the civil servants yeah so other than regulatory cholesterol where do you think what is the risk like in china we've seen they were having phenomenal growth right and uh, xi jinping was like the toast of the town everywhere and suddenly 5 years ago or whatever it was 4 5 6 years ago he decides to take a u turn right and people were hoping that's a one off the alibaba episode etc etc it never ended you know, china is a different place today mm-hmm. what what are the risks to india what could go wrong in this you know 25 year journey that you know we can foresee today or what could get in the way well it would be an overuse of fiscal and monetary policy see i am very disillusioned with fiscal and monetary policy i if fiscal deficits could make countries rich then no country would be poor you know why bother being poor if you could be rich by doing fiscal deficits and i'm still you know in all my time at rbi i finished my term there but when i was on the board you know i couldn't make up my mind whether monetary policy was a placebo a painkiller or a, or a or i mean it's it, it, or, or a steroid you know it's 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 either a placebo or a painkiller steroid monetary policy is not a solution to productivity or india's problems and i don't think fiscal policy is either you know so i think that if we overly and, and politicians will obviously and policy makers sometimes and civil servants will egg them on that oh just spend money or just you know just do this reduce interest rates india's problem is not cost of credit it is availability of credit so so how much monetary policy makes a difference i think people have overrated that globally by the way i think there will be a reevaluation of the importance of monetary policy because i wish quantitative easing had not been invented forget about weaponized central bank expansion of money so i would say the biggest risk to india is this belief that there is a diet coke approach to poverty reduction you know you can get the taste without the calories <laughs> mm-hmm. there is no taste without the calories in life yep. you know there's no free lunch there's no free ride so i would urge us to just you know jonas sachs he was the inventor of the polio vaccine he used to say the only question to ask yourself is are you being a good ancestor and it's a really interesting question for me as a listed company right the balance the next quarter and the next quarter century 
you know you can't say i'll make the next quarter and screw the quarter century so i think being a good ancestor for reducing indian poverty policy makers need to pay less attention to fiscal and monetary policy and they need to pay much more attention to the real economy of labor markets of regulatory cholesterol of land markets of productivity of infrastructure of primary healthcare these are all not really and they they quite boring right i mean i remember a person a minister resigned because he was given education rather than power i mean it just seems to me like well clearly you're not interested in india's problems so i would submit that some um, india's risks are really from short termism yeah you know we should you know we are Eliot Kipchoge is one of my favorite marathoners and the only human being who's run a marathon in less than 2 hours he says that you run the first half of the marathon on your legs and the second half on your mind see that's true for careers that's true for companies but for countries it's true and india has run the first half of the marathon on our legs it's time to run that second half of the marathon on our mind and the world is conspiring to make our assets attractive our assets of culture our assets of multilingualism our assets of you know we have 2 million 1.7 million engineers 40 million graduates so my sense is that you know i talked about luck and skill actually dumbledore tells harry potter in chamber of secrets it is our choices more than our abilities that reveal what we really are so i think these fiscal and monetary policy choices and bold and teamwork choices on the structural side um really would 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 um put yeah. these two 300 million people off farms see finally how will we raise per capita income by moving 200 million people from farm to non farm employment yeah. and that needs everything that's not going to happen just because of one reform right yeah so i think uh, 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 one of the things uh, that uh, on monetary policy a little technical for our viewers but was this whole concept of the modern monetary theory where it did not matter how much you printed right <laughs> so all that is turned on its head but i think uh, and uh, it's I, not I, turned on its head that was always fraud there's always fraud okay yeah <laughs> so uh, uh, so one thing which gives me a little comfort is that in india we've had a rbi which has more or less you know been the backbone of this country and uh, taken independent decisions where they needed to be and we've not gone down that crazy road go a uh, road where you know we are like like alan greenspan you know feeding a stock market which probably accounts for 0.1% of the country's you know population they've done the right thing kind of and now there's a framework against which which is a transparent framework how to assess them on the fiscal policy i think what's it called the fiscal responsibility and frbm budget management or something so that's there but there you know they can themselves change the goal post or push it back push it forward but i think uh, uh, from a long term perspective it makes sense for some of this to be codified in our uh, laws that they can't be changed i think europe has that right when you become part of the eu you have to uh, you have to guarantee a certain level of deficit you can't go beyond that unless there's a yeah but it's italy and greece are part of the eu <laughs> so yeah, yeah. see i i, I think yeah. you can't yeah. you can't legislate future generations right then what's the point yourself? of having elections how do you insulate yourself from someone who comes and says i'm going to go crazy like i think india is going to a phase where already you know i turned on the tv at 9 o'clock the other day and i was uh, i had to listen through that process is there's already a debate about giving freebies 
versus being a little more rational because someone has to pay for the freebies and that can be that can be like a downward spiral which takes everything down right so you have to yeah, really... but you need to be a good ancestor but being a good ancestor i mean see freebies if you're giving free k12 education at quality i wouldn't call it a freebie no yeah that's an investment see we all have in companies also we sometimes distinguish between losses and investments right i mean if you said you wouldn't have losses then tesla and amazon would not exist so i think we have to i don't think you should try and legislate morality you know i don't think you beyond a point you cannot legislate morality i think being a good ancestor is choices that leaders make i i, I would trust the indian system i think you know democracy in india seems to work i think essentially we are fiscally conservative because we don't have huge amounts of savings at at the bottom of the pyramid and you know instinctively and culturally we tend to be a little more frugal this can change i mean some politicians will obviously think differently about their roles you know i grew up in kashmir there are two words for property amanat and jagir you know jagir is yours um the maharaja of koch bihar used to spend 50% of the treasury on rolls royce and cartier it was his jagir obviously he destroyed it but amanat is something that is not yours it is held in trust for the next generation but in kashmir they have a twist on it it you have to hand it over in better condition than you received it <laughs> so that is, so i think that politicians who sort of think about the next generation rather than the next election will impose short term pain for long term gain will not pander to the lowest common denominator and those are the kind of leaders whom i think are remembered by history otherwise it's fireflies and frog right as historian used to brodel used to say i mean so my sense is every leader makes the bed they should sleep in and um i think there are a number of fiscally conservative politicians in india obviously in a poor country like india there are emergency situations where you need to help bhuka nanga pyasa but i think those are becoming much less than they used to yeah. right Yeah. So if and, the patient is in the ICU you can't tell him to quit smoking or lose weight. <laughs> But if you're in the ICU every day at somebody somebody has to tell him to quit smoking, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh okay. Uh you you spoke of a 25 year perspective, right? And it's good for India etc. Uh, a little, little micro question. So when you are dealing with various uh you're dealing with various sectors, right? You're staffing various mm-hmm. sectors. where are you seeing a runway for like where you can see 10 20 25 years that you know this sector could really do well i mean i think that it is domestic consumption right we are so far from the productivity frontier and consumption numbers in so many areas fmcg fmcd so, so as of now india is not becoming the factory to the world but that doesn't mean we're not going to have lots of economic growth in my mind so i think india's factory to the world is is in the 5 10 year time frame but next in the 10 15 year time frame but in the short run domestic consumption is holding up well you know the non tradable sector which economists traditionally said non tradable services are not something that can make a country rich because you can't export services as well as you can export goods which is now proven wrong by software i mean we'll export almost 200 billion dollars of software um but my my sense is that domestic consumption as we have five transitions in india farm to non farm rural to urban subsistence self employment to decent wage employment informal to formal and school to work 
right, because of demographics. I think these five transitions are driving domestic consumption of goods and services and a lot in services. So the three fastest growing segments of India's job market are not by industry in my mind, they are by function, are sales, customer service, and logistics. Okay. Okay. Uh, when uh, so actually you you've touched upon this, but I'll still ask you this question. Elon Musk in a recent interview, you know, someone asked him about population, and he said the biggest risk to the world is not overpopulation; is actually underpopulation. I think that's mm-hmm. uh, almost not verbatim, but something like that he said. And uh, uh, in a in in at least in India, you know, all of us grew up being taught how terrible overpopulation is so that comes as a, like a you know like a, jar, a jarring statement but when you think about it and even if i refer to what you just said about japan and all these countries so uh, how do you think about underpopulation uh, is it a risk is it happening from a global perspective and uh, talk to us a little bit more about that and uh, when does india go start going through that phase and what really happens then I mean, more people will die in Karnataka in the next 10 years than be born. Kerala is already at the demographics of Italy. So please be careful. And India is many continents, right? UP, Bihar, Jharkhand, I mean, 50% of population growth will be in five states in North and East India, and only 15% of GDP growth. Only 5% of population growth will be in the South and West of India in the next 25 years. So we may end up with... A, a, a Chinese New Year, you know, Chinese New Year is a four-day weekend where 150 million people buy a train ticket to go home for Chinese New Year. We don't have that on Chhat, Diwali, Eid or Christmas, but you've started seeing it now in Kerala on Chhat, right? Because Kerala is now 9% Bihari, right? They sent 10% to the Middle East, so they brought 9% from Bihar. Um, so you start seeing Chhat as a holiday. So I think this... Messing around with demographics is a real problem, right? In the 1970s, there was a racist Stanford professor called Paul Elric who wrote a book called The Population Bomb, who said the world is going to explode because of its population. And the solution is we must have a big famine and let Indians starve. Those were the exact paragraphs that we must have a good famine in India, let Indians starve because the world cannot handle so many Indians. And, you know, in some level... The limits of growth. There was a Chinese guy who went back and he convinced Mao when he heard Paul, he read Paul Elric's book. He credited that. So Paul Elric is actually responsible in some ways, intellectually, spiritually, for fathering the one-child policy of China. And so I would say that let's not mess around with nature. It is clear that richer countries tend to have less children. It is clear that more educated countries tend to have less children. It is clear that women. Uh, in the workforce tend to have less children. So let's not try and mess around with this from some policy perspective, because you will end up in a place where naturally, as you get richer, educated, and women enter the labor force, population is going to come down. And places like Singapore, the bribe is not working, right? I mean, they are trying to bribe people to have children, and it's not working. In Japan, they're trying to bribe people to have children, and it's not working. So I would say, no, population is not a problem, as long as we sort out our plumbing issues. Okay. You know, in fact, I was reading somewhere that there's this Eastern European country i think is is it czech uh, the slovakia or the other one mm-hmm. where they said if you have the third child no income tax for you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in slovakia yeah, yeah. Slovakia, okay. there. 
So that is, I guess, people are coming up with innovative uh, solutions. So I got well, two more wolves, questions. Wolves, yeah. wolves, and forests are coming back in parts of Germany. I mean, it's it's really uh, it's it's hard for us to imagine how fast the population in Europe is declining, and we we must um, look ahead. Yeah, in our case, the uh, the cycle turns around mid-century, right? When uh, we could face this issue. Yes, about late. late I mean, if these things are approximate so somewhere between 45 55 45 55 is okay so that's far out we don't have to worry too much about that uh okay uh let's say you know you bump into mr modi mm-hmm. and he says hey manish you you know you've studied all this you you get all this well just tell me five things i should do to make india more productive and less poor so i i knew you answered it but i just want to sort of kind of yeah. recap what what are the five things you would tell mr modi it would be urbanization formalization financialization industrialization and human capital urbanization we need more cities we only have 52 cities with more than a million people China create more cities okay. have the smaller yeah. towns become into cities yes. don't don't define urbanization as shoving more people into delhi bombay bangalore so urbanization we keep we have 6 lakh villages 2 lakh of those villages are less than 200 people you can't take jobs to people you have to take people to jobs but let's not shove everybody into delhi bombay bangalore so urbanization and formalization you know you have to reduce the regulatory cholesterol and you have to do civil service reform because india is informal because of the civil service now now that is the main question financialization our credit to gdp ratio is stuck at 50% it should be 100% so we china's 300% is the wrong number but credit to gdp should go to 100 industrialization the only way to help farmers is to have less farmers the only way to have less farmers is to have more factories in the short run and so industrialization of our labor force is again a child of infrastructure regulatory cholesterol and human capital and that's my fifth point which is really nep you know i think the only of all the five the most important is human capital is fixing government schools you know only 45% of our kids in left in government schools is the most embarrassing number about india only 5% of kids in japan go to private school only 10% of kids in uk go to private school only 15% of kids in us go to private school and primary education is something that is should be free in this country and at quality but we haven't fixed it so skills should be fixed college should be fixed i mean If you, my favorite Hindi poet is a guy called Ramdhari Singh Dinkar. He says, "Shama shobati us bujang ko jiske pas garal ho." You know, only snakes with venom can be kind, benevolent, and generous. You know, toothless, venomless snakes can't. And India was toothless and venomless when we didn't invest in our human capital for seventy years. We had IITs, but they led to a diaspora. You know, IITs didn't. And and so primary education. college education skill education is probably the most important way we can be a good ancestor anyway nice uh, my last question you mentioned uh, uh, you have a son uh, in our yes. conversation uh, so when you talk to your son about uh, the future about india uh, and about him thinking about trying to make his place in in the world in india how does that conversation go you know what what do you tell him what does he ask and i'm, I'm just curious to know so if son, both son and daughter i i no, drove no. in noor um i i tell them that look you know you 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 you've got to become the change you seek as gandhi ji said um you don't have to be western to be modern 
See, I think we you're very lucky. You're growing up when we were growing up. I, I thought Western clothes were cool. I thought Western music was cool. I, I thought everything about the West was cool because it just felt like low self-esteem almost, right? I don't think that's true. The economic gravity of the world is shifting to Asia in the next 20 years. I, I, I don't think American politics are what they used to be. American politics were self-healing. They are no longer. Europe has an aging problem. So I think that, you know, sometimes it's more important to be lucky than to be skilled. <laughs> and so you're lucky to be growing up in an India where we finally discarding the, the past of our this thing. So my sense is that, you know, to do your undergrad in India, at least don't go overseas for yeah. undergrad. Do your grad school in India would be the most specific advice I would give people because then you marinate in the Indian ecosystem, right? In Sanskrit, there's this wonderful word called sthanabalam, you know, sthan ka bal ho jata hai. It's not roots, it's marination. You know, you understand... How Karananidhi makes sure that Tam Rams don't live in Tamil Nadu, but Lalu failed at his social revolution, but the social revolution worked in Tamil Nadu, or what Desarat Pawar did. These are important parts of understanding independent India. And countries are path dependent, right? Historians say, you know, path dependence matters. So I think if you understand India on where we were and how we've come here, you'll have an unfair advantage in thinking about the next 25 years. And then you will sort of come to my conclusion that if you were... Um, to choose to be born a baby for now, it would probably be India. Wow, wonderful. On that note, Manish, thank you very much for taking the time out. It's been a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure to write to me at info at equitymaster.com that's info at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.